Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. Each week, you'll hear interviews with some of the world's leading corporate governance experts, including founders, scholars, board members, executives, investors, and more. This is a long form and open-ended podcast with no set agenda, but to hear the stories and wisdom from some of the most distinguished governance experts. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I hope you enjoy the conversation and that you get to learn from some of the leading minds in governance. Hi, everyone. For the inaugural episode of this podcast, I decided to interview Joe Grunfist, who is the William A. Frankie Professor of Law and Business at Stanford Law School and is a senior faculty of the Rock Center for Corporate Governance at Stanford University. I think Joe is the ideal guest to launch this podcast since I personally consider him one of the top legal minds involved in corporate governance, and he's an experienced director of public and private companies in addition to being a former commissioner of the SEC. I should also disclose that I consider Joe a mentor, having been his student at Stanford and later we were colleagues for almost a decade when I was the executive director of the Stanford Rock Center. Let me also say that Joe is not your typical academic or scholar, but I'm sure after you hear this interview that you'll realize why Joe is not your average professor. I enjoyed very much having this entertaining conversation with Joe. I always learn a lot from him and I hope that you also enjoy and learn a lot from this episode. Joe Grunfist, it's great to have you in the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time for this. It's an honor and a pleasure. And the first question is, how are you doing? I mean, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and is everything okay? I'm having the best pandemic of anybody in America. What can I say? I, I'm blessed to be locked in a beautiful home. Uh, I've got a wonderful, wonderful partner. Uh, I feel, you know, terribly for, 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 you know, millions of people whose situations, you know, clearly aren't as fortunate as mine. I mean, I just, um, it's a terrible situation and what it's doing in many ways is, is, you know, exacerbating the gap between the haves and the have nots. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm out here in basically in the woods in Portola Valley, uh, and the world is very different where, you know, I grew up in New York city. Uh, and you know, just just the comparison between the two is rather is rather shocking in this environment. Yes, and and the problem is we don't know for how long it's going to last, and all the uncertainty is uh, making this uh, very nerve wracking. So you know, at least I, I'm glad that you're doing okay, and that you know we can discuss some of the consequences of this for companies and governance. And I think your views will be very informed and I'm looking forward to hearing them. But first, before going and, and digging into the corporate governance side, I'd like to talk about a bit of your origin story and where you come from and what did you study? What did you go through to become this leading corporate governance expert? So maybe let's start by that. I'll make it simple. I'm probably the luckiest son of a bitch you'll ever run across. It's not, it's not complicated. <laughs> without 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 luck nothing good happens and anybody who ever tells you otherwise is either an idiot or a liar or a combination of the two okay now that's that's i, I do agree i mean there's this typical question on luck or skill and i tend to think that luck is is a, is a very big part of it well let's go into I, your you know actually there's something there it, it's a combination of luck and skill and and you know when i talk to students about this I say one of the greatest skills in life is what I call luck management, hmm. that you're going to have good luck and you're going to have bad luck. And luck management involves maximizing 
the consequences of your good luck and then minimizing the consequences of your bad luck. Everybody has bad luck. And if you let the bad luck kill you, well, game over. Thanks for playing. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, to me, it's remarkable how many people have good luck and don't know what to do with it. Well, I always remember there was somebody I know who in every interview always asked the question at the end, do you consider yourself a lucky person or not? And oh, unbelievable. <laughs> right? I mean, there is something about people being optimists versus not. And and I think that's a good hindsight into the, the mindset of people, right? And and people look for their luck and consider this, themselves lucky, I think, tend to do well because of their just attitude towards life. Yeah, that's lucky. <laughs> okay. so, so I, I should say that you know we've known each other for a long time I, I you know I was a student at Stanford you know we worked together for many years at the Rock Center so I have the benefit of knowing you quite well but we'll go deep into some of the things that you've done and, and, and discuss some of them so first of all you were SEC commissioner between 1985 and 1990 which I think is, is a very important part of your background knowledge in terms of governance so Maybe tell us more about what was that experience like and how did it inform later on your academic and professional life? Well, you know, at the time that I was nominated, I was then the second youngest commissioner in the history of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, Only William O. Douglas, who later went on to become a Supreme Court justice, was younger at the time. Uh, It came out in my Senate confirmation hearings that at the time I was still paying off my college loans. uh, How old were you? Uh, I was then 34. Okay. All right. Uh, So I was still paying off my college loans. I I explained it wasn't because I didn't have the money. It's just because the interest rate on the loans was so low relative to interest rates at the time that I was taking advantage of the arbitrage for as long as I possibly could. And, you know, it was a hilarious conversation to have on the record. Uh, but, But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and, and look, there's a certain challenge that comes with being a very young SEC commissioner, because basically um, uh, there's a level which nobody will give you the respect that you otherwise get as an SEC commissioner. Typically, SEC commissioners at the time were well-established giants of the bar in their 60s, and I didn't fit that mold. I was also very different because I was a combination economist and lawyer. Uh, and at the time, uh, you know, the, the economic view of regulation was not as deeply ingrained as it is now. Uh, things that today are generally well accepted were revolutionary uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, and by simply looking at a problem from an economist's perspective at the SEC, where I actually had a vote, um, it was really unsettling to a lot of people at the time. It was, it was, it was a threat to the dominant intellectual model. So, you know, there I was, uh, 34 years old without the established track record in the bar and coming in with a very different intellectual model of how you approach regulation of national securities markets. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, that put a very heavy weight on my shoulders and uh, uh, basically had to work my ass off uh, to to make that kind of approach work. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, four or five years later, um, I was still standing and it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it's because the, the, the approach has a lot of substance to it. 
if done correctly. Okay, so then after you finished your your five-year term at the commission, you joined uh, the faculty at Stanford Law School, uh, and how was that transition? Oh, you know, it was interesting. The, you know, at that point, you know, Carol and I, we sort of looked and we said, you know, there, there are three things, you know, three dominant models. I could go to Wall Street and, you know, try to make a fortune. Uh, I go to a law firm, you know, and become a partner and, and you know, do that stuff. Uh, or I could try the academic thing. Um, and the way I looked at it is I was always curious about the academic thing. And I realized that if the academic thing didn't work, I could always go to Wall Street. I could always go to a law firm. So of the three alternatives, there was really only one that modeled out as a now or never. And I figured, let's go ahead. Let's do it. Uh, And haven't changed. It turned out to be exactly it turned out to be exactly what I wanted to do. Um, But I did not know that at the Mm -hmm. time. Well, I think you are a very unusual professor in the sense you can just that- stop there. We can stop with the unusual. <laughs> you can say strange doesn't strange. have to be right, like unusual, you know? Well, you know, what I, what, what, what I meant by that is you have this, uh, di- you wear different hats. You, you are the academic, but you also have dabbled a lot. As a director of companies, you are a founder of a company, so you you kind of have a multifaceted approach, which is not, I, I would say, typical. And and you've thrived in having different roles in in all of these areas. So you kind of went back and have this very very interesting career. Maybe you can talk to us about founding financial engines. I mean, that should be a, a great story, and maybe tell us the origin of that story and how did that come about. Well, you know, first stepping back a little bit, uh, yeah, I do many different things. You know, I teach, I write, um, uh, I found companies, I invest in companies, uh, I'm a director of publicly traded companies, um, you know, and, and, you know, to me, it's, it's all part of the same thing. It's, it's, it's all, you know, driven by a common set of interests and inclinations uh, and yeah, I am very different from the typical academic because I have zero interest in in building my life within the walls of the ivory tower uh, and staying sheltered from the push and pull of the real world. I I want to get out there. I like being in the scrum. I have you know no trouble you know getting into fights and you know litigating over things uh, you know and starting businesses and they can succeed and they can fail. It's very, very different from living in the seminar room, and and you know, a piece of me needs that. Uh, and then when you talk about the founding of financial engines, let's go back to the theme of luck. Uh, basically, you know, Bill Sharp uh, is a Nobel laureate in economics. I'm not, and uh, Bill and I, we've been friends for a long time, and you know, we would just occasionally get together for a cup of coffee. So we got together for a cup of coffee at Tresseter and we're talking and, you know, Bill, what are you up to? And he's explaining, you know, how he's got a, uh, uh, you know, set of programs that he's running from a uh, server underneath his desk at the business school. And these programs are all designed to help people uh, model portfolio allocations. And, you know, his vision is that millions of people would be able to use the same tools that the most sophisticated people on Wall Street use in order to allocate their portfolios. 
and I'm listening to Bill and the whole bit. I say, and you, you really think all of this is going to work off of a server coming from your 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 office at the law school? And you know, and Bill, the level of sophistication you need to use in order to run the software you've built, you know, basically you've got to have an IQ of about 150, and you have to have a degree in computer science, and it's not user friendly and you know, by the end of the conversation, I'm explaining to a Nobel laureate in economics why his idea about economics doesn't work. And if he actually wants to achieve his objective, he has to start a company. Right. Uh, and and Bill is sitting there going, well, do you know anybody who knows how to start a company? And I'm looking at Bill and I kind of go, Bill, I know how to start a company. So that's where we started Financial Engines. It was all, it was, it, you know, it was all, you know, it, it was all the Silicon Valley stuff. It's, you know, a cup of coffee, two guys sitting there, and a napkin. And I noticed the other co-founder... You need a pen in order to write on the napkin. And a pen. And and I noticed the other co-founder was was Craig Johnson. Um, Oh, yeah. What was his role in in, in all of that? Oh, Craig. So, so, you know, Craig passed away several years ago uh, and uh, sorely, sorely missed. Very good old friend. Uh, You know, when, when Bill and I were talking, I said, look, let's bring a third person to the table. All right. You know, I've got a bunch of experience starting companies, um, but I also know what I don't know. Uh, and let's bring a third person who's got even more experience than I'll be able to, to, to round it out. And and I said, let's let's start with Craig. You know, if Craig doesn't work, there'll be a couple of others. And and, you know, Craig worked wonderfully. His, in, in, in particular, Craig had the right intellect and chemistry. Uh, Craig, you know, had a background in, in, you know, engineering and computer science and in finance and, you know, was a graduate of Stanford Law School and uh, uh, just a terrific guy. And I thought the chemistry between Bill and Craig would be wonderful. Uh, and, and it was. And you know, he, he played a terrific role and he was also a great shepherd. And he introduced us, helped introduce us to you know, several different sources of financing and, and was a great friend and, and critical in our evolution. So the company was founded in 1996 and the IPO, correct me if I'm wrong, was in 2010. And eventually, uh, yes, a, mere, company, a mere 14 years later, a mere 14, yeah, you, you, you we were ahead of the curve as usual. It took us 14 years to be an overnight success. Okay, and and the company got sold for three billion dollars to uh, a private equity firm, Hellman and Friedman, uh, about two years ago. So it they took the company private again. Tell us about that process. Well, you know, companies go through life cycles, and there are periods of time in a company's life cycle, in my view, where it makes a lot of sense for the company to be publicly traded. And, you know, we went through that phase and it was a terrific phase. And, it, you know, if you look at the history of the company, we, we grew from, you know, zero assets under management. Uh, we came up with a very unique business model. Uh, and, it, and it was the business model uh, combined with Bill Sharp's genius in programming, you know, that led us to really be the world's first successful robo advisor. I mean, th- th- this is something that I think people generally don't understand. Uh, and then the market evolved and matured in a way that it made much more sense to continue growing the company in the private market, uh, in large part because there were a whole bunch of investments that would have to be made where, you know, if we did it as a public company, it would kill our earnings. Uh, it would, you know, devastate the stock price. You just model it out. You know what the public market wants. 
And, you know, we were able to find a private company that was thrilled to buy us at a premium to the publicly traded price. Uh, and they were thrilled to make the additional investments. And they were thrilled to see um, that, you know, they make those investments. They know that returns will go down for a period of time, but then you expect that they'll come back up. So it's a, you know, it, it was, you know, if you want to over-intellectualize it, it was a classic signaling kind of issue. Uh, and we resolved it very well. Uh, the stockholders, you know, got a premium of more than 30 percent uh, over what was, you know, trading in the market at the time. Uh, and uh, everybody has moved on very happily. OK, no, it is a great story. And uh, you, you went through the whole cycle from startup to IPO to private company. So not only to IPO, but you added the going private. So, so I guess you, you've seen it all. Uh, two other boards that you sit on are very prominent. I think the story of Oracle, I mean, that case is taught in every corporation's class in law schools, the, the Oracle uh, derivative uh, litigation. It's, it's a story that every corporate lawyer knows, but not uh, not maybe the general public or, or the typical oh, director. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, you know, it's really interesting. People think I'm embarrassed, all right, about that story and that litigation, when in reality, I love it. Uh, and I'm actually thinking of writing about it. Uh, mm. as, yeah, no, because, you know, the judge in that case, Leo Strine, uh -huh. uh, first, Leo, Leo and I are very good friends. All right. We, we spoke just last week uh, and people are shocked by that, you know, because for, for those in the audience who don't know, in that opinion, um, you know, uh, a fellow Stanford professor, uh, Hector Garcia Molina and I, we're a special litigation committee, and basically for the first time, uh, Delaware Chancery held, re rejected a special litigation committee report on the grounds that the special litigation committee was not independent. And there, there were very strong words by, you know, then Vice Chancellor Strine suggesting that I in particular was not independent and that I should have known it. Uh, and, um, you know, needless to say, with all the respect in the world, I believe that the vice chancellor was wrong, uh, but nobody cares because he was the vice chancellor rather than I. And I have a great time teaching that case and explaining why uh, my view of it is that it was wrongly decided. Um, but, you know, as I point out to many people, and, and I'll get back to, to the fact that, you know, the, the decision that, that if you look at the subsequent history of the case, we were entirely vindicated. Uh, and I tell people that the special litigation committee report that Hector and I wrote, you know, has been proved uh, to be the best special litigation committee report in history because it's the only one that's been tested in the crucible of litigation. So eight different judges looked at the same fact pattern in which it was alleged that Larry Ellison had engaged in insider trading, and eight different judges basically said, you know, the Special Litigation Committee report is absolutely right. Uh, so, so you know, um, uh, our work product was, you know, by all accounts, absolutely spot on. The plaintiffs were totally wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Vice Chancellor uh, Strine, who then went on to become the Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court, uh, you know, with all due respect, I, I think the opinion can be challenged both on the law and on the facts. But that's, well, that's, that's it, another story. 
That's you know really interesting. And we'll get back to the idea of direct independence when we talk about boards in Silicon Valley, because that is a big part of what's going on in conflicts of interest and transactions, particularly today where we see many down rounds. But you know, to finish on your history, so I mentioned the Oracle board, and then there's the KKR board. And so maybe you can tell us about how did that come across? And, and you know, you're still sitting on that board. And I think that's a very prominent private equity firm. How did you end up in that board? Um, there, you know, basically, I knew I knew George Roberts and Henry Kravis. Uh, and I got to know George and Henry. That's an interesting story. I got to know George and Henry while I was a uh, commissioner at the SEC. And, you know, way back in the dark ages in the 1980s, there were all sorts of questions about regulating leveraged buyouts, and they were much more controversial then than they are now. And, you know, the staff at the SEC and staffers in the Hill were telling me a whole bunch of things about leveraged buyouts that I just didn't believe. Uh, And it's not that I thought they were lying to me. I just thought they didn't understand because they were telling me that markets worked in a way that I've never seen them work before. Uh, and at some point, I just got a little frustrated and tired about people telling me things that made no sense as far as I could tell. And I said, look, I got to figure out what's going on. So I did something that at the time was entirely workable, but would never work today. I picked up the phone and I called George Roberts. Hmm. All right. I said, get me get me the number of KKR. All right. And he got me a number and said, all right, who, who is this guy? And he says, this guy's Roberts. I go, fine. So I pick up the phone, I call George, all right, and they put me through. And I say, George, I'm Joe Grunfest, I'm a commissioner at the SEC. Oh, okay, nice to meet you in the whole bit. I said, look, people are telling me all sorts of stuff about your business. Um, doesn't make sense to me, all right? This, it, this doesn't seem right there. And he goes, well, yeah, no, none of that is right. I said, so tell me what you do, tell me how you... And we had this conversation w- without lawyers as an intermediary. I didn't have to submit any interrogatories. You know, there was no white paper. There was no, you know, you know, um, uh, uh, questions of the industry. It's, I was just at that time able to pick up the phone, talk to people and say, tell me what you think is going on. Uh, and obviously in today's world, you know, these conversations would all be chaperoned and everything. And, you know, and I just hit it off with these guys. I understood what they were doing. I understood all of the issues. You know, no, nobody's a saint. Nobody's perfect. Um, but there are things that 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 you know. Sometimes the political process will, for its reasons, push versions of reality that are simply incorrect. And if you misdiagnose a problem, you're guaranteed to come up with the wrong treatment. And people were then misdiagnosing the problem, in my view. Mm-hmm. So n- let's move forward. You're at Stanford Law School and you create Directors College, which is probably, not probably, but certainly the most prominent program for directors of publicly traded companies. It's in its 26th version. Maybe we should talk about director education and how did you come across this idea of bringing directors to Stanford, educate them? How do you see the evolution of this area uh, since, you know, 1995 to 2020? And tell us the origin story of Directors College. It's ridiculously simple. You just give people what they want. You know, at at the time, I had lots of occasion to interact with, you know, senior executives and directors of publicly traded corporations. 
And, you know, lots of people would come to me and say, hey, Joe, how do we do this? How do we do that? And the whole bit, I'd get mad. So I said, isn't there a place where you directors can get together and get all of this stuff answered in an efficient manner? And the answer was always no. All right. So it was a situation where information flowed among directors in a set of one-on-one. All right. And there was no, you know, high level situation for directors to be able to get together and talk about these issues in a safe environment and and explore them in a way where they weren't being lectured to and you know that's that's the other piece of it uh you know lots of other organizations have have uh you know director education programs and the like but but many of these programs have an agenda they're trying to get directors to look at things in a particular way and the way we run directors college i i try to describe it as being issue heavy but agenda less so we know what the big issues are all right and everybody knows what they are but we approach them all in a very different way we're not telling you that look here's what you should do we're not telling you here's the answer all right and because among other things in many situations nobody knows the answer and the answer for one company is very different than the answer for another company we get that but if we can just provoke thoughtful conversation and help directors get the objective information and knowledge they need, then directors will, in my experience, make better decisions for their corporations. And that's all that we're trying to do. We don't want to get directors to do X, Y, or Z. We want directors to be better informed about whatever decisions it is that they make. So obviously, you have a very keen eye for the hot topics of corporate governance and maybe (laughs) exactly so so you know i want to go through these some of these hot topics i know that unfortunately due to covid19 directors college is now suspended which is probably the first time in 26 years right yeah don't fight the virus the virus will win Yes. Don't so, so let's go through some of the hot topics that I think are going on today. One of them, which you've been a very prominent person in, in advocating on one side, is the exclusive uh, federal forum charter provisions. And the Delaware uh, Supreme Court just made, how do you pronounce the name of the case? Shabakuki. Shabakuki. So first, so first let, let me explain. There, there are a set of Supreme Court decisions that for some reasons many lawyers have a hard time pronouncing. Uh, Shabakuki is at the top of the list. And, and I explain to lawyers, you just take the name, you break it into two. All right. Shaba, Kuki. There you go. Uh, so, you know, and it's not spelled that way. People think it's Italian. It's not. It appears to be Slovakian. I origin rather than Italian. And, and, you know, I may be, my wife and I, I think we're the only people in America that know the difference between Slovakia, Slovenia, Slovenia, and Slavonia. Uh, that's a different conversation. Uh, okay. So, so the difference between Slovakia, Slovenia, and Slavonia. What is the difference? Yeah. What's the difference? I don't know. You tell me. All right, that'll be our next podcast. All right. Tell us about this case, because I know you've been involved in this area for a a long time. You were a proponent of these federal foreign provisions. So what happened? What did the Supreme Court just say now? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's another typical Silicon Valley story. Uh, Priya Hoskins, you know Priya, she's a uh, 
uh, DNO insurance broker calls me up one day and she goes, we're dying. We're getting killed here. I go, Priya, Priya, what's the problem? And she starts explaining what's happening to her clients and how rates are increasing. And, you know, we say, look, let's look at the data. I'm a data driven guy. And what we see is that the rates are going up at the same time that plaintiffs are beginning to file more Section 11 claims in state court rather than in federal court. So then taking a step back into all of this complicated securities regulation, you know, the the highest risk transaction that corporations do is going public. Uh, and it's high risk because it exposes you to what's known as Section 11 liability uh, under the Securities Act of 1933. And the Securities Act has what's called concurrent jurisdiction. Plaintiffs can file either in state or in federal court. And over the last five years, plaintiffs have calculated correctly that if you file in state court, the probability your complaint gets dismissed on a motion to dismiss is much lower than it is in federal court. Now just do the math. Mm -hmm. If you file a complaint and its survival characteristics is, is stronger, all other things equal in state than in federal court, then you're going to file in state court. You're going to get to discovery in more cases and you will file more complaints. You'll file a complaint in state court that you wouldn't file in federal court because you know it's going to get dismissed in state in federal court, but it has survival characteristics in state court. So what happened five years ago that there was some entrepreneurial plaintiff that found this or there was some decision that happened? No, 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 no. So, so basically, you know, Priya came to me and said, what are we going to do about this? And I, and I scratched my head and I said, look, not complicated. Why don't we adopt a charter provision? And the charter provision simply says that if you get sued under Section 11, then the litigation has to be in federal court, can't be brought in state court. So... Um, we wrote these provisions, federal forum provision, and you know, about 100 companies picked them up. And uh, a plaintiff's law firm found some, some um, uh, plaintiffs who had you know, bought securities and they said- Joe, by the way, what I meant by the question before is what happened five years ago that people shifted into state court instead of federal court? Oh, great question. The short right. answer is, I don't know. I think, you know, if, if you were a profit maximizing plaintiff's lawyer, you should have done this 20 years ago. Right. Right. Why, why they suddenly woke up to this is a bit of a mystery to me. Okay. So, so you know, I invent this federal forum provision. Uh, plaintiff's law firm, you know, finds, you know, a plaintiff who had bought stock in three companies that had the provision. They sue. And uh, much to my amazement, we lost in, in chancery court. Uh, an opinion that I would describe, it's a whole separate podcast, uh, as the worst opinion in the history, in the more than 200-year history of Delaware jurisprudence. Harsh? Uh, oh, no, it's not harsh. It's totally accurate. Okay. Uh, and, and you know, look, it was, it was wrong on the facts, all right? The opinion says things that are demonstrably factually incorrect. All you've got to do is go to SEC filings and you realize the chancery opinion was just wrong on the facts. It would say things. There's no footnote. It's making things up. All right. There's no footnote. And, and, you know, it says, this is how the markets work. And the answer is no, it's not. And then it describes federal law in a particular way. And the description overlooks controlling United States Supreme court precedent. And, you know, I kind of go like, you've got to be kidding me here. So, you know, the opinion was wrong on the facts. It was wrong on the law. 
wrong on the facts multiple ways, wrong on the law multiple ways. We take it up to the Delaware Supreme Court. Uh, Bill Chandler, who used to be the chancellor in Delaware, argues the case before the Delaware Supreme Court, and we get a 5 nothing victory. All right. Uh, federal forum provisions are perfectly valid under Delaware law, you know, just like I thought they were. So uh, you know, th- there is a side story happening this week that maybe has to do with this. DNO insurance premium are off the roof, and Elon Musk at Tesla uh, decided to underwrite the insurance for his directors. I mean, what do you think about that story? I mean, I've never seen that, but maybe th- it hadn't before. Well, first, God bless Elon Musk. I think I have a vivid imagination, but nothing in my imagination ever comes close to Elon Musk. Uh, You know, God bless him for coming up with things that I just go, no, no sane human being would do that. So look, let me be as charitable as possible. Uh, Elon Musk and Tesla faced a terrible situation and there is no good choice. You know, and I don't know what the facts are here, but, you know, which insurance company wants to write an insurance policy where you're insuring Elon Musk's mouth? (laughs) That's basically right. That's what you're doing. Right. Right. What's the probability for the next year? This guy doesn't say something that will lead to a lawsuit. That's a small number. All right. That's a small number. All right. So the if you think about it objectively, the insurance policy is not on Tesla. The insurance policy is on Elon Musk's mouth. All right. Now, I think any rational insurer would say, look, first, there's going to be a high deductible. All right. Now I'm just making up numbers, something like $80 trillion. All right. The first $80 trillion of loss, you own it. (laughs) And then if you want me to write a million dollar policy, after you've absorbed $80 trillion, I'll charge you $3 million for the million dollars of coverage. Okay. Right. So what's really interesting is Elon has basically created a situation created a situation where he is close to uninsurable. All right. And therefore Tesla is close to uninsurable. And the policy that you'll get won't be a terrific cop policy because it'll have a very high retention or deductible. Uh, and then they'll charge you a ton for the risk beyond that. Okay. So the alternative that Elon and came up with is a contractual arrangement where we don't know enough about the details. Right. Say much. All right. So we have to, we have to be modest that way. Uh, but it clearly raises a bazillion questions. And there, you know, what Elon is saying, look, in the event of a problem where you're exposed, I will cover your risk. That's what he's saying to the directors and the officers. Well, you know, I sort of sit back and I kind of go like, all right, you, you avoided one problem in terms of the cost of third party insurance, but now you've created other problems. Well, let's describe some of these other problems. All right. First, ladies and gentlemen of the board of directors, you do not have a high quality credit writing your insurance policy. So typically what you want is your insurer's capitalization to be impervious to problems that come up at the insured. So what you want is either zero correlation or negative correlation. And here what you have is strong positive correlation. So in the worst of all situations, 
Um, there's a claim against Tesla because its stock price has gone down. Well, if the stock price has gone down, Elon's net worth has gone down. Well, if Elon's net worth has gone down, your ability to actually recover on the insurance has also gone down. So, so what you have is a potentially impaired guarantor of your pseudo insurance. So that's, that's, that's just a practical problem. And then you've got the question of, will you be able to actually get your coverage? All right. And here we need to know more about what the contract looks like. You know, the public information says there's some third party involved. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But the concern, the rational concern would be that uh, if there's a claim that Elon has some ability to reject the claim and therefore uh, the directors are beholden to Elon because they don't want to piss him off. Uh, and if they piss them off, then they lose their insurance coverage. Well, if that's the concern, if the contract is written in a way that that's a credible concern, um, you could argue that there are no independent directors right. for any purpose on, on the board at, at Tesla, which, which is a big thing to give up. Uh, it means that you you will never be able to cleanse any activity uh, at at Tesla. You'll never be able to get the benefit of what's called the business judgment rule by passing anything through an independent committee of the board because they're all insured by Elon, so none of them are independent. Yeah, no, it is it is clearly a unusual to say the least situation with Elon and his board. Let's talk a little bit broader in the market. In the last few years, there's been this surge in stakeholder capitalism. Not a new thing, of course. This has been debated forever. Uh, you know, Milton Friedman back in the 1970s, there's been a surge of what we call now ESG, environmental social governance uh, questions. I mean, you know, we've we've gone through the corporate social responsibility side. I mean, how do you see now this evolution between stakeholder capitalism, ESG, and what does it mean for boards today? Look, uh, the short answer is I'm not sure what it means because I'm not exactly sure how different people are defining things like ESG. You know, so I, I frequently joke that, you know, to some people, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. Uh, but you look at the literature, you look at the different approaches, you know, I sometimes respond saying, no, sometimes ESG strikes me as, as an acronym for extremely subjective guessing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and here's the reason why, you know, you look at one advocate of ESG and they'll say, and I'll get concrete, they'll say, what we do is we pick the best governed companies, the most socially responsible companies from, you know, each of the different sectors. And another person says, no, we have exclusionary rules. You know, we think that anything involved in carbon extraction is bad, and therefore we won't invest even in the most socially responsible oil companies. And then you have another approach, which is an engagement approach that says, yeah, we invest in some companies that we don't like, but we do it because we're going to try to force them to improve. So you've got, you've got three different strategies that that lead to three very different investing profiles and they all stand up and they all call themselves esg now i i don't think any of them are wrong i think that they're just different paths up the mountain 
but when people come in and say, oh, gee, you know, are you for or against ESG? I just sort of look at them and I kind of go, you know, tell me what you mean by ESG. Well, sustainability is the other word that people uh, talk about. Um, and, 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 and a lot of the agenda in these uh, discussions. Well, look, I, I, I get, look I'm, if you define sustainability appropriately, I'm strongly in favor of it. Right. All right. So, so the, I'd say, so somebody comes to you, gee, how are you against sustainability? I go, I'm not. Well, you can say, of course I'm not. Right. What do you, but please tell me what you mean. Yeah. And, and, and the trouble is the amount of undisciplined thinking and wishful thinking you get and, and, you know, utopian thinking yeah. uh, is, is just astounding. So, and so much of this stuff is well-intentioned. Absolutely. There's no doubt. But you say, all right, map this out. And then you point out to people like that can't work. And then they're very disappointed. Yeah. Right? Especially because I am with them. All right. I, I, absolutely. Do we, do I believe in global warming? Yes. Do I think it's a huge problem? Yes. Do I think we need to do much, much more than we're doing about it? Absolutely. All right. Do I think many of these, these capital market oriented approaches, do I think they're going to work? No. And I can tell you why. And then I go to the next step and I say, I want you to succeed. We need to do something totally different. All right. You know, and I'm, I'm very much with Bill Gates. You really want to solve this problem. At the end of the day, I don't believe politics are going to work because I think we have a tragedy of the commons on an epic scale. And if you really want to solve this problem, we've got to move to green energy. Uh, what we need is an environment in which non-polluting sources are cheaper than dirty, soft coal. At the end of the day, even if we in the United States reduce our carbon consumption very significantly. And I think we should, and I'm all for that. All right. We're not going to solve global warming because if you look at the problem, it's called global warming. So if we reduce our carbon emissions in the United States, and if India and China simply increase theirs because we're reducing ours, we've done nothing to solve global warming. Right. And you know, the, the reality is no law that we pass in the United States is going to change the behavior in India or China. That's a fact. So, so let's talk a little bit. Hold on. I got to finish this here, Evan. Okay. And the only thing that we can do to change behavior in India and China is economic. Mm -hmm. That's to create, to create technology that makes it in their best interest to stop polluting. All right. And, that's a totally and that's a totally different strategy, but that's a strategy that will work. Right. You know, obviously we can go deep on this topic, but it's going to take us all different ways in terms of macro politics. But let me go into governance in Silicon Valley, and let's start by governance in startups. Right. Uh, you and I have worked, and you know, we created the venture capital symposium at Stanford, particularly because. We realized that governance in public companies was very different to startups. And how do you see the evolution of this space of governance and private venture-backed companies? Just take a piece of this, and I'll try to do this sequentially, and then you can ask another question. We'll break it apart. So first, 
conflicts conflicts uh, in early stage Silicon Valley companies vis-a-vis conflicts in publicly traded companies. Well, you know, publicly traded companies, you often try to avoid conflicts and you try to have a bunch of independent directors, you know, who could cleanse a transaction. Uh, that's unrealistic in many early stage startups. Uh, everybody on the board in, in a typical situation will be there for a reason and the reason they're either an employee, a founder or an investor. Uh, so there will be conflicts. You can you will not avoid the conflicts. What you need to do is be honest about the conflicts. You need to be transparent about the conflicts and you need to manage the conflicts as best you can. And in some situations, the conflicts are sufficiently serious that there's no perfect solution and you just have to find the, the, the least imperfect solution and hope that that works. Now, that, that's the reality of part of the messy business that sometimes comes up in Silicon Valley startups. Now, what's intriguing is in the vast, vast, vast majority of situations, even though the conflicts are, are potentially everywhere, it's not a problem. All right. It's not a problem because, you know, generally people know how to navigate through these conflicts and they know how to basically resolve them within what I call a zone of reasonableness. All right. That, all right, we've got a conflict between the following series of preferred. We've got a conflict with the employees. Well, if we recut the deal in the following way, do we all think that that's reasonably fair? Yes. Okay, let's all hold hands, let's shake on this, and let's move forward. That works in more than 95% of the time, right? And part of the reason why it works is, is, you know, those of us in Silicon Valley, we're repeat game players, all right? You know, we keep seeing each other over and over again. And on the one hand, that means, oh, you've got all of these different interconnections and therefore you're conflicted from one perspective, true. On another hand, oh, you've got all of these repeat connections. If you act like a jackass in one deal, you know, you're going to get punished by the community because you're being unreasonable. That's true, too. So so there's an inherent disciplining mechanism that arises when you've got a repeat game process and you need to preserve your reputation as a reasonable participant at the table. That doesn't happen in publicly traded companies where, you know, everything is in effect a one-off and it's one and done and you're gone. Okay. That's, that's, that's the much more. So, so it's, it's two very different problems and you can have a solution that works in one environment that doesn't work in another. So let me, uh, talk about the reputation angle and then we'll talk about dual class share structures. This argument of reputation has always been a prominent one in Silicon Valley where, look, VCs will not go against founders because they have to protect their reputation. People will know they are known to squeeze founders in bad situations. But the reality is it's very difficult for founders to fight back, right? We don't know so much what goes behind the scenes. It's kind of an uneven playing field. And maybe now, Joe, that we're going through this COVID-19, we're seeing all these valuations drop and we're seeing many down rounds. And unfortunately, if you're in a Series C or Series D round where you've already given the majority of the board control to VCs or others, it's not a secret that many VCs, and I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of them are very reputable, but there's a lot of people who say, look, I've got to maximize the returns for my fund. And in this situation, 
you know, we can do a down round, we'll take a higher percentage of the shares, and we're going to profit from that. So we see a lot of bad behavior in venture capital firms or investors that try to maximize for themselves. And this is what we refer as a classic dual fiduciary conflict, which Delaware of the traders has tried to say, hey, wait a minute, your duty is not to the preferred, but your duty is to the common. And and you should and this balancing act, even though what you described at the beginning is what should happen at boards, we know that in many occasions it's not what happens. And one way to fight back, I think, from founders is is that they've created this dual class share structure where they say, look, we can have you invest in a company, but we're going to have the control in the board or we'll have the votes to, to make decisions. And it's created a separate problem, right? It's kind of the Adam Newman problem where you have people who there is abuse and it depends where does abuse come from? It, does it come from the founders? Does it come from the investors? I think typically it, w- it used to come from investors and then it, it shifted to these very high profile entrepreneurs and now it's shifting back to investors. Do you think that's an appropriate description of kind of what's been going on in Silicon Valley? You know, I think there are many things that are going on, you know, so, so first the question of, you know, who's, who in a certain sense is in control is very much historically and situationally contingent. Uh, we, we, most recently we've gone through a period where if you were a founder and if you were a founder of a sufficiently hot company, you could wind up maintaining a great deal of control, notwithstanding the fact that investors had invested tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in your company. Uh, Now market conditions may be changing and the ability to maintain control may be altering. uh, And it may well be the fact that more companies are gonna have to take down rounds and dilution and founders are gonna have to give up control because of macroeconomic forces that that have nothing to do with their individual skills and abilities. Uh, By the same token, we can go back, you know, a year in time, and the VCs can be complaining that we have to invest all of of this money at very high valuations and give a tremendous amount of control to the founders, Uh, again, for macroeconomic reasons. And if we're up to us, we don't think this is, is, is a reasonable equilibrium. Um, it's, you know, in my view, it's very much like a pendulum and, you know, the point about a pendulum is it always overshoots and, you know, these, this debate about control will overshoot during one period of time where the founders will arguably have too much control and then it'll overshoot another period of time where the VCs will arguably have too much control uh, and even if you say on average and over time, the industry gets it right, that's no solace to any one individual because any one individual circumstance is is never the average over time unless you're a repeat game player in the process. And those tend to be the venture capital firms much more than the individual entrepreneurs. Okay. Well, let's go now into a rapid fire question, Joe. We we have about 10 minutes left and and you know, this is a little bit of a more more to get to know you behind the the governance uh, uh, academic uh, environment. So, you know, what are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Is there is there any of these books? Yeah. Yeah, well, f- first thank you for for yeah, I should disclose you gave me these questions in advance. So, I don't I don't want people to think that I really have the ability to answer such profound questions. 
you know, without without the benefit of some introspection. So, you know, so it's really interesting. One to three books have greatly influenced my life. It's 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 three books, but they all have a common theme. Okay. And the common theme is what is life all about? All right. And and you know, the first book is the Old Testament. Okay. Right? I could just stop there, okay? You know, <laughs> the Bible. Okay. And you know, that's good. And yeah, I say that I can get elected governor of Arkansas. Okay. And you know, it's true, right? My favorite book is the Bible. What a great story. The Old Testament. Terrific stuff in there. You know. His second book, Henderson the Rain King by Saul Bellow. Okay. Uh, it's a story about, you know, a man who goes through life in effect saying, I want, I want, I want, and he doesn't know what he wants. And he in a certain sense he has everything and he goes off to Africa to try to find himself. And he's not in Africa either. And and you know, it's it's you know, a certain sense man's search for meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's another book where that's part of the title, Viktor Frankl, all right? His, his book on man's search for meaning. Yeah. And, and if you stop and if you think in a certain sense about all literature, it's about humanity's search for meaning. What, is, what does this mean? All right. So, you know, those, are the, those are the three. Okay. Right? They're good. They're good. Um, are, there, are there any quotes that you think of often or live your life by? I mean, do you have a motto or, or, I know, Joe, by the way, I know you very well in that you are a master in terms, in, in words. And so quotes, is there anything that stands out to you or that you often think about? Yeah. There's, there's this, this author, William Goldman, who wrote a book about Hollywood. Okay. And, and in there he says, nobody knows anything. <laughs> yeah. He's right. You know, you know, COVID proves it. Nobody knows anything. So, you know, he was trying to explain, you know, how do you figure out what's going to work in Hollywood? And he's one of the most, he's one of the most successful screenwriters in, in history. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff he's written. And you would think he would understand how Hollywood works. So somebody in his book is explain how Hollywood works. He says, nobody knows anything. Okay. Yep. And and when somebody that successful in his domain explains his domain by saying nobody knows anything, it teaches you a little bit of humility. So so you know there's that. And then then there's another quote where I, I'm not going to I'm not permitted to describe who said it. It was in the context of of you know a meeting at a hedge fund where we were talking about the future of the euro. Mm-hmm. All right. And, you know, the general consensus was, you know, the euro can't survive and all this other sort of stuff. And this one person basically says, just because something is inevitable doesn't mean that it's imminent. Mm. And, and that goes to the question of timing. Mm. Timing, timing is really important. You want to get some things right. You can be too early. You can be too late. Timing is tough. And even if you're 100% true, if, even if you're 100% sure that something's going to happen, and even if you turn out to be right, yeah. all right, if you're too early, you're wrong. Right. If you're too late, you're wrong. So you have to be right, and you have to be timely. Yeah, right. Yeah, timing is, is massive. Uh, I like that. Um, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Let's, let's get to... If I love it, it's not absurd. <laughs> please okay 
And and the thing that I I, I love one liners, you know, really short jokes, in out done. Okay, and you're now going to say, well, give me an example. Okay, so you know, here's one that I like. Henny Youngman. Uh-huh. Right? He says, you know, my girlfriend calls me up. She says, come on over. Nobody's home. I go over. Nobody's home. <laughs> that's a good one. So metaphysical. That's 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 unbelievable. You, you made me think of of your brother Billy, who has uh, a tremendous career as a comedian. I mean, how is he doing? And and how is the banter in your home? Look, when I explain to people that I'm the shy, quiet, introverted brother, I'm the one who has trouble finding the words. All right, I'm the dull one. All right, I'm the scholar in the family. People go, no, 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 no. That's insane. It can't possibly be. Then they meet my brother and they kind of go like, uh, yeah, you're you're a little soft spoken. You're shy. You have I have a hard time getting the words in. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, conversations basically, you know, growing up, the four of us, we would typically have eight conversations going on among the four of us uh, in multiple different languages, all at the same volume level, which was 12 on a scale of 10. So, you know, nothing unusual. That's great. And so to finalize, uh, you know, which living person do you most admire? I mean, this is a tough question, but... Easy. Easy, okay. My wife. Okay. Ser no, seriously. I mean, it's, 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 she's right about so many things where I am wrong, all right, that it's, it's not complicated. I have so much to learn. It's remarkable. How can I argue against that, Joe? You can't, which is why that's the perfect answer to that question. Any other answer to that question, and I'm not having dinner tonight. I just right, want you to right. I just Well, Joe, this has been great. Uh, you know, we can go on for hours in governance. I mean, you have this wealth of knowledge and experience that I think is very unusual, and it's hard to find uh, anywhere else. So I'm honored that you were here. Hopefully, you will be the inaugural episode of this podcast. Thank you very much, and we'll talk soon then. And, and great success to you in this new endeavor. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast with your friends or colleagues. If you'd like to reach out to me, just email me directly at epstein.evan at gmail.com, or you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein.